Good to see you tonight. Uh, we are going to jump into the New Testament tonight, the 27 books of the New Testament, and hopefully we will uh, get through this. I wanted to point out a few uh, helpful aids if you uh, want to continue studying um, uh, the Bible and how we got it and the history behind everything. Um, some very helpful books uh, on that. Um, probably the most uh, comprehensive uh, work that's written for um, uh, for Christians who aren't engaged in uh, uh, theological scholarly work is a book by Brian Edwards called Nothing But the Truth. A very helpful book. Uh, it's still going to take a little bit of work to get through, but it is uh, very helpful and it covers everything that we've uh, discussed and a whole lot more. So I'd uh, recommend that work. He also wrote a book uh, specific to uh, the New Testament where I got the uh, the title of what we're doing tonight called Why 27? How can we be sure we have the right books in the New Testament? We're going to talk about that tonight, but uh, this obviously goes in much greater detail. Very helpful uh, book on that. Uh, James White uh, wrote a book called Scripture Alone, Exploring the Bible's Accuracy, Authority, and Authenticity. So um, if you find yourself often in um, conversations where you're defending the authenticity and the sufficiency of Scripture, uh, this is one of the best works uh, for that. And if you're interested in the study of textual criticism, which we talked about, um, a little short book called Behind the Bible, how that comes to be, how they examine the manuscripts and come to translations and everything else. This is a great book uh, uh, as well. I can order any of these for you if you're interested. This one, I believe I have one copy back there already. So just uh, some books if you're interested uh, in further study there. So let's jump into uh, the 27 books of the New Testament, the canon of the New Testament. Um, on the uh, sheet that was passed out to you, um, up top, I uh, gave you a few definitions. I want to go through these first because we're going to refer to them several times so uh, we can know what we're talking about up front. We don't have to continue to refer back uh, to defining them. So uh, the first thing we'll talk, uh, one of the things we'll talk about is the Nag Hammadi Library. Um, we'll just read this. A collection of Coptic papyrus documents found near Nag Hammadi, a, a city in Upper Egypt, a, um, um, basically a Persian farmer was uh, fertilizing and he was digging uh, and uh, he hit upon a jar and he pulled the jar out and all of these papyrus texts were within it. Um, and so uh, they've been studied ever since. Um, there's 52 texts found in there uh, in 12 codices. These are um, uh, fragments of uh, a certain type of paper that's written upon. Uh, discovered in a jar in 1945 and 46. The texts are dated the 4th century. They're copies of earlier Greek documents dating to the 2nd and early 3rd centuries. The majority of them are Gnostic uh, in nature and primary documents um, that shed significant light on Gnosticism. So what is Gnosticism? It is a term that designates a variety of religious movements that stressed salvation through gnosis or knowledge, uh, that is, of one's origins. Uh, most scholars identify as an essential of Gnosticism the element of cosmological dualism. In other words, an opposition between the spiritual world and the evil material world. So Gnostics uh, believe, and they're, 
we see Gnosticism in various forms today. Uh, but it's the idea that everything physical, material, is evil, and everything spiritual is good. Um, so they taught the heresy that um, Jesus born as a man uh, was evil, and when he was baptized by John the Baptist, he became spirit and was then uh, good and perfect. So he was evil in the physical sense, but in the spiritual sense, he was uh, good and perfect. Um, Gnosticism was very, very popular uh, in the first, second, and third, onto the fourth century even. Um, the book of First John, uh, John wrote against Gnostic heresy. Um, so we see it even being addressed as early as uh, in, in the scriptures. Uh, pseudepigraphia, uh, writings ascribed to some other than their real author, generally with a view to give them an enhanced, enhanced authority. Uh, the term is especially used for pseudonyms uh, given to Jewish works uh, dating immediately after um, the uh, Christian era. Uh, they're not included in the canon of, uh, of Scripture, um, and a few examples there of what those are. So uh, false teachers would write uh, their theology, their doctrine in letters or their forms of a gospel account, and they would, uh, they would write uh, as if they were one of the apostles generally. So they would say, this is the gospel of uh, whoever, Philip, or this is the gospel of um, Matthew, or, or whatever it was. Um, there were several of them, um, but uh, the idea being that all of them have, if you read them, uh, some of them are qu kind of entertaining to read, just like some of the apocryphal literature we talked about in the Old Testament. But um, at the end of the day, it denies uh, uh, much of uh, Christian theology. A lot of it was from the Gnostic schools of thought and, uh, and contains a great deal of heresy. A lot of it is plagiarism from uh, the letters of the apostles. Uh, a lot of it is just rewritten phrases of Jesus. Um, nevertheless, um, it's obviously um, not, uh, not uh, sufficient uh, for inclusion in the scriptures. But it is very important because we see a lot of that. And uh, as we see often, the Discovery Channel and National Geographic want to do us all a favor and make sure we know about those because they're not in the Bible. And they assume they should be. So we'll talk about why they're not. Um, so uh, those, those three things are important as we look at the canon of the New Testament. Any questions about those before we press on, just so they're all in our heads as we talk about them? Yes, sir. In the scriptures? No. Mm -mm. It, uh, it, the book of Enoch probably came well after, uh, maybe even 100 to 150 years after the scriptures were written. Yeah. Anything else on these? Apocrypha. Now, they, they all really fall under this, this term, uh, pseudopigraphia. Uh, they're um, they're non- uh, non-authoritative works written during the same time. Yeah. Yes, sir. Some of it. Particularly uh, the works on uh, Maccabees, uh, the books of Maccabees, those are, but it's it's so hit and miss that 
It's, it's really hard to determine. The, the information on the wars and the conflict of the Jews with the Assyrians and the Babylonians, that stuff is really helpful. Um, but beyond that, it's kind of hard to tell because some of it is so, uh, it's so minuscule in the grand picture of history over 400 years in the intertestamental period that it's hard to determine what's true and what's not. But uh, some, of it, some of it is helpful, certainly. All right. Um, one and and just to mention, uh, one of the reasons you see in the writings of the Apostle Paul, um, there's five references in his letters, in five of his thirteen letters, where he draws uh, specific attention to the fact that it is in his handwriting or his signature is on there. Um, that is to distinguish his writings from those of these false. Uh, teachers who have no authority to write. So we see as early as the writings of Paul that uh, many of these things were being produced um, under his name. Um, So how can we be sure that the books of the New Testament are the correct ones? Should we have more or maybe we should have less than what we have and has been argued uh, through the history of the church? Uh, It's sometimes claimed, as we looked at in the Old Testament, and especially with the New Testament, that it was a council of the church that eventually got together and made the decision that we should have uh, the books that we have. And so it wasn't until much later that we really did that. The Roman Catholic Church claims it wasn't until uh, 325 A.D., uh, until this was settled upon on the First Ecumenical Council, um, which is... uh, I want to show us that it's very far from the truth, that all the church has ever done historically is confirm what the scriptures already point to in the the reality that these books are scripture, are authoritative, always have been, um, and did not need uh, any kind of authority from a church to uh, back that up. Um, So in answer to this idea that any of the writings written during that time could have ended up in the Bible, uh, we have to examine the biblical evidence of uh, the New Testament. So we're going to start there, and we'll also look at a little bit of uh, the history of the church and some of the writings of the early church fathers to help us uh, walk through that. So um, it really would have, if you consider the, um, the first century Jews who were living during the time of Christ and particularly the early church um, immediately after the ascension of Christ, uh, it would have been very natural for them to expect something very similar to what we have uh, in terms of the Old Testament scriptures. So they received the teachings of Jesus. They received the teachings of the apostles. Uh, they certainly would have expected that uh, this would be recorded in very much the same way as we have the recording of the uh, law and the prophets in the Old Testament. Um, And Jesus really gave a clear indication of this. Uh, Let's look together at John chapter uh, 16. We'll start. And if someone will read for us when you get there, verses 13 and 14. Okay, thank you. So who is Jesus referring to here? The Holy Spirit, right. Now, how does the Holy Spirit communicate to us? Do we hear His voice? Through the Word, right. Okay, so there's a clear indication here from Jesus that we are going to be carried along, helped by, guided by the Holy Spirit. 
He does that by giving us the word of God. And we read later and we'll look at later um, in the, the next section here. Uh, that uh, the apostles themselves refer to the ministry of the Holy Spirit in giving us the Word of God. We see that specifically in Paul's statement in 2 Timothy 3, and we'll look at that in just a moment. Uh, We see a a similar reference in John uh, chapter 14 and uh, verse 26. Jesus said, The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to you remembrance all that I have said to you. So remembrance of all that I've said to you. Well, how will we remember what Jesus has said to us? It is through the word of God. And so as we start to put the pieces together, we see Jesus himself is referring to the fact that all that he has taught will be uh, will be remembered, uh, and we we later see um, uh, from uh, Peter and Paul specifically uh, that we have the word uh, as uh, a fulfillment of that promise from Jesus Himself. So, um, the New Testament writers we're also going to see had no doubt whatsoever about their inspiration from God. Uh, more than this, they expected their letters to be uh, to be passed around to the churches, to be read to the churches, to be copied and uh, and kept. Um, so uh, let's look first, though, about um, their their claims to inspiration. Look at Second Peter, uh, chapter one. This is one of the uh, predominant texts in this regard. First Peter, chapter one. And if someone will read for us, um, I'm sorry, Second Peter. Second Peter chapter 1, verses, uh, let's read 16 through 21. Okay, so there uh, we see that reference from Peter of this is a work of the Holy Spirit, just as Jesus promised as we read uh, just a minute ago in John 16 and John 14. Um, so what else, what else does Peter point to here, though, to establish their authority as apostles uh, given uh, that their word is authoritative and given by God? What, what else do we see here that establishes his authority? Okay, eyewitnesses. Uh, to what specifically does he point to? Okay, the transfiguration. So uh, who was with Jesus at the Mount of Transfiguration? Okay, the, the inner circle of Jesus, Peter, James, and John. And, um, and they were there. So they saw that, and we see uh, he references that. What else? So he is, in doing that, he's tying what he's doing in writing the Scriptures, carried along by the Holy Spirit, to the prophetic Word of God. There's a direct tie there to uh, what we have in the Law and the Prophets is just as authoritative as what the apostles are doing. We've been commissioned by Christ and carried along by the Holy Spirit in these things. And why do we have the authority to do this? Because Jesus has let us in on uh, all all of his authority in essence. We saw uh, what went on at the Mount of Transfiguration. What is he referencing in verse 17 there? Where do, we, where do we see, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Where do we see that take place in the scriptures? The baptism of Jesus, right? Um, 
so these references to that, we, uh, we see these things going on at the Mount of Transfiguration. So all of this, um, the apostles certainly saw um, the ascension of Christ and all of these things as well. So this establishes authority. And Peter's very clear, this is not some cleverly devised myth that we made up. Uh, we're, not, uh, we're not coming up with this by our own interpretation, uh, but we were carried along by the Holy Spirit to come to the conclusions that we did. Um, so very clearly, uh, he has no doubt about his inspiration and his authority. Uh, we see the same thing in Second Timothy 3 with the Apostle Paul. Second Timothy 3 Let's look at verses 16 and 17. Great, thank you. Jeff got tired of listening to me, so he's listening to R.C. Sproul. <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> so Paul references the fact that Scripture is what comes from the breath of God. It's not, it's not man's work. It is a work of God. This is where we come to understand uh, why we call the Scriptures the Word of God. Yeah, men wrote it, but it was by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, being carried along uh, by the Holy Spirit. And then he even goes on to tell us what it's useful for, teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent and equipped for every good work. So we have reference to the fact that what is being written is scripture, that it is from God, that it is authoritative, and that it has a use, it has an application. So again, no question as to whether or not um, the writers of the New Testament saw themselves as, uh, as those who were, um, who were sent by God to do so. They were inspired uh, by the Holy Spirit. Um, let's look uh, also at where we see um, that there was an expectation by the apostles uh, that their writings would be read and passed among the churches. Look at Colossians chapter 4. I think I put the wrong... Uh, yeah, it's not 6. That You should change that on your sheet. It's Colossians four sixteen. Sorry about that. Someone read that for us. Good. So wh- why, why would Paul insist that the letter be passed on to another church? Okay, to teach the church. Does he just think that he's that great of a writer that everyone needs to read what he's writing? Um, no, he certainly saw that what he was doing was Uh, carrying the authority of Christ. He's commissioned as an apostle, and therefore he he writes with authority. Uh, Look also at 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 27. Okay. Read this letter to all the brethren. Make sure they hear it. Implied there is that it goes to all of the churches, that all the Christians should hear what uh, is being read uh, from this letter. Also, Revelation chapter 1 and verse 19. Write, therefore, this is, uh, this is a command given to John as he's seeing uh, everything uh, that he's been shown. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. 
In other words, write down, record everything you're seeing. Why? Well, it needs to be given to the churches. And it certainly was. We have it uh, today. So, again, the writers of the New Testament don't ever question within the Scriptures their authority uh, of inspiration. They're being carried along by the Holy Spirit um, and they're commissioning by Christ Himself uh, for them to do this. So, uh, we see uh, just by this, at, at least in the writings of Paul and Peter and John, that they are uh, referencing themselves as authoritative in this regard uh, by the Holy Spirit's leading. Now, um, what we see in the writings of the New Testament is that the writers were apostolic. They were apostles of Christ for the most part. Uh, The only exceptions are the Gospels of Mark and Luke. And of course, since Luke wrote Acts, the book of Acts, and the letters of James, Jude, and possibly Hebrews, depending on who the author of Hebrews is. So all the other books of um, of the New Testament were written by uh, apostles of Christ. So which would those uh, be? Well, the 13 letters of Paul certainly would be uh, part of that. Um, the letters of Peter. Uh, what else? The letters of John. How many letters? Uh, how, how many writings of John do we have in the New Testament? Gospel of John. What else? First, second, third John and Revelation. Good. Um, What about Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew? Matthew was an apostle. So um, we see these these, uh, writings from the apostles. Those that aren't from the apostles, let's talk about those. Um, The Gospel of Mark. Um, Now, what comes into play here is uh, some of the writings that we have from church history, some of the early church fathers and what they, uh, what they wrote is very helpful to us. Now, we don't place authority in them in terms of uh, their infallibility or anything of that regard. But when we want to get an understanding of what went on then and there, we want to look at those who were there and what they thought in the church. Um, it's very important and very helpful. They are not as removed as we are. So uh, Papias and Tertullian, uh, they wrote uh, quite a bit in regards to the Gospels uh, in the second century. Um, their claim, and many before them and many after them, claim that the Gospel of Mark is really um, Mark recording the words of Peter. So it's assumed that the Gospel of Mark, what we have, is a telling of the Gospel account uh, by Peter. And um, why, why, would that be, uh, why would that be significant? How close was Peter to Jesus? Yeah, again, we, as, as we look at um, what we just looked at, the Mount of Transfiguration, uh, we see certain times when uh, Jesus went to heal people. Uh, We see uh, as he went to the Garden of Gethsemane. All of these instances we see Peter is there. Uh, He was one of the three who was closest to Jesus all throughout his ministry. So it's significant uh, that uh, this would happen. So uh, in many ways we see Mark as um, not necessarily... uh, Remember we talked uh, several weeks back about one who's an emanuensis, a sort of secretary for someone. We see that with... Uh, with the Apostle Paul, 
um, in some of his letters. Uh, Mark wouldn't have served as an amanuensis, but rather probably Peter told him uh, all that he saw and heard and everything else, and Mark uh, recorded that um, from Peter's account. So it would be like a... uh, if you think of maybe a biographer, someone who hears the story of someone else and they write a biography of it. Um, so that would be uh, Mark. So he has a direct connection to one of the apostles. Um, what about Luke? Well, Luke was, uh, we see in the book of Acts very clearly that he was a companion of the apostle Paul. Um, and it is uh, generally ascribed to Luke that uh, what he is writing is... Uh, one, we, we actually looked at this several weeks ago when we started the Gospel of Luke, that Luke is gathering the information that he's writing his Gospel from whom? Okay, good. Eyewitnesses, right? He's, he makes that clear. This is eyewitness testimony. I've went and talked to people, and you, Theophilus, can go talk to them as well if you don't believe what I'm writing. So, uh, And on top of that... Um, uh, the early church generally tied what, uh, what Luke wrote to the Apostle Paul because he was, uh, they were so close in terms of their companionship. And we see that through the book of Acts. There are the famous passages in Acts where Luke talks about we. He says we did this and we did that. In other words, he's with the Apostle Paul in those instances. And as you read through Acts, sometimes you see Luke referring to them And that's when they went and did what they did apart from Luke and then referring to we when he was involved in those instances. So uh, several several writings uh, in the early church referencing uh, Luke's uh, association with uh, Paul. Um, I'll give you a few examples. Irenaeus, uh, writing around A.D. 180, claimed that Luke was always attached to and inseparable from Paul and with him performed the work of an evangelist and was entrusted to hand down to us a gospel. In 230 A.D., Origen, who was in Alexandria in Egypt, he referred to Luke's gospel as composed for Gentile converts, the gospel commanded by Paul. Um, So it wouldn't be a surprise at all that Luke having this close companionship that... um, that Paul would have asked Luke uh, about what he saw and heard and knew and everything else, and, and that Luke would be asking Paul, and they would have these conversations. This was their whole life. This is what they were consumed by. Um, and so it's very likely uh, that uh, Luke's authority to write uh, comes through his direct association with the Apostle Paul. Um, Let me give you uh, a few more uh, thoughts on these. Um, Papias and Tertullian, um, thinking back on Mark's gospel again, um, and on Luke's gospel and Paul, um, they got to a place where they referred to these men because they were so closely associated. At times in their writings, although not accurate in terms of their authority and everything else, you see at times they'll refer to them as being of the apostles uh, because of the close association. So it just goes to show what the early church really saw these men as. They held them in high esteem and gave them uh, great authority. So what can we say about the books of James and Jude? Well, James and Jude were both 
uh, brothers of the Lord Jesus himself. Let's look at Matthew chapter 13 and verse 55. Someone read that when you get there, please. Good, thank you. All right, so uh, we see uh, we see reference to his brothers here, and Jude being um, probably uh, Joseph. That's referenced here. Um, so now, obviously, some of these names are names of uh, some of the apostles, right? They're uh, disciples named James, but that was not their very, very common name. Uh, James, who wrote the book of James, was the brother of Jesus, uh, son of Mary. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's a client. Yeah. Uh, that James, the apostle is the writer. And uh, and Jude, I think they say, was a um, was an associate of the apostles, but not obviously not a brother of of Jesus. Um, go ahead. That they're his brothers. Um, mainly from the uh, the writings of the early church that reference that. So the early church father references, and on top of that, the um, was, as you look at time period, uh, we wouldn't ascribe what was written in the book of James to the apostle James because his martyrdom came before what was most likely the completion of the letter itself which aligns with uh, James, the brother of Jesus. So this is where we get into the work of textual criticism. Um, Time periods, um, location, all of those sorts of things. Um, And the brother of Jesus, James, was martyred by being thrown off the top of the temple. Um, And the reason being for that was um, him not renouncing his writings about Jesus. So we certainly refer to the gospel of, uh, excuse me, the the letter of James for that. And James, the brother of Jesus, was also uh, one of the primary leaders in the church in Jerusalem uh, in the first uh, early church. So um, he certainly would have had the authority there as well. So uh, there's a lot pointing to that that uh, goes certainly at some uh, extra-biblical texts and and works, but uh, very helpful in in concluding that. Um, So again, uh, they're not Jesus' apostles, but James and Jude would meet the requirements of what it meant to be an apostle. Let's let's remember what those are. Look at Acts chapter 1. Now, what's what's going on here? Remember... um, Judas was one of the 12 disciples. He hung himself uh, because of his betrayal of Jesus, and he proved to not be uh, a true, faithful follower of Christ. And so uh, the apostles came together and determined that Judas needed to be replaced. And so in Acts chapter 1, we see they're laying out what are the requirements for one to be an apostle. So in Acts chapter 1, verses 21 and 22, we see those requirements. Uh, someone read those for us, those two verses. Okay, thank you. So these are Jesus' brothers. There really can be very little question as to whether or not they were meeting the requirements of the apostles. Um, and we see throughout the gospel accounts that at first, did they believe Jesus to be the Messiah? 
No, they didn't. They didn't. They didn't call him Lord, and they they question him at many different times. But eventually, we see them to be some of the great leaders uh, of the early church. But uh, no doubt, they were uh, they were present at these things, and they uh, had very close association to Jesus. At least all growing up, they lived in the same household, and I would assume was probably very frustrating for them at times. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's a tough act to follow, right? Yeah. <laughs> Why can't you be like your brother? <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the uh he he must be drunk or something. Yeah. A little, not much. Um just Basic references to them, but no, nothing really. No, uh-uh. Um, be- between Jesus' birth and beginning of his ministry? No. Very, very little. Um, and even what we do have is generally considered uh, to be either completely wrong, made-up stories, or there's not enough evidence to show that it's true at all, so really don't have much. And the reason being for that, uh, who would have assumed during those 30 years that Jesus was who he was? Um, They're not looking at a child or a teenager and thinking he's the savior of the world. Um, Even though they were told that by the angel Gabriel very clearly, um, we see through all of it that they didn't assume he was uh, who he was. And so they weren't thinking to make note of his life and uh, what he said and did. Um, and Jesus himself, remember, in his humanity is coming into his knowledge of who he is and his learning and, and everything else. So um, there, we have to play that into there as well. So good reason as to why there is not much uh, in that time period. Okay, um, as I mentioned, James became a leader in the Jerusalem church. I would argue that perhaps he was the, uh, the first pastor of the church in Jerusalem. Uh, we, see, uh, we see reference to that in Galatians uh, chapter 1. Uh, remember, there's, um, there's the, we see it in Acts as well, uh, the controversy in regards to whether or not the Gentiles needed to be circumcised. And so they bring the issue to the Jerusalem council. Well, who heads up the Jerusalem council? James, James, the brother of Jesus. So he was given authority by the early church. Why? Probably because he met these requirements that would have been the requirements of the apostles. So, again, establishing his authority and why it is accepted that his uh, book uh, be in the New Testament. Um, And, again, the leaders in the early church refer to James and Jude as having unity with the apostles. Um, And, again, in some of their writings, refer to them as apostles. Technically, they're not apostles, but their association was so close that often they were referred to as apostles. Um, Okay, the book of... Any questions about that before we push on? Man. All right, Hebrews. Um, The early church seemed rather unanimous on the authorship of the book of Hebrews being the Apostle Paul. Um, 
but there's still question about it. It's interesting that Paul identifies himself as the author of 13 other letters, but not Hebrews. Um, There is a bit of a difference in writing style, but that doesn't necessarily mean it wasn't Paul. Um, He was writing to a different audience. So uh, it's in question. Uh, The main uh, three authors that have been suggested for the book of Hebrews are Paul. And if Paul is the author, then there's no question about the authority of the book. Um, Apollos who was uh, a pastor at Corinth, a very close associate of Paul. Um, So he would have had that association to one of the apostles. Uh, The third uh, suggestion is Aquila and Priscilla, who were the very close friends of the apostle Paul and worked with him in ministry and even uh, uh, rebuked Apollos at one time. So uh, we see... uh, we see the associations of any of these who have been suggested as authors of the book of Hebrews. Um, so really it points, uh, all of this, we can point to three requirements that uh, are given for the authority of a writer of a New Testament book. Um, at least one of them needs to be met, but if the third one is met, um, it is uh, also true that the second one is met. So the first is that one would be an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. So if they're an apostle, there's no question as to their authority, right? They've been granted that by Christ. We see that in the scriptures. Um, If they're not an apostle, they had to have written under the authority or the direction of an apostle. So we see that in the book of Mark, which is attributed to him being um, given uh, all of the gospel account from uh, Peter, for example. Um, Or third, they had to be an eyewitness and a companion of Jesus in, uh, in the sense of Acts 1, 21 and 22, which we just looked at. In other words, they met the requirements of what it would have been to be an apostle. Um, and as a result of that, they would have had a close association to the apostles. So if these very clear, very narrow uh, things weren't met as requirements, then anything they wrote would not have been included in the New Testament canon. Um, they weren't even considered uh, as authoritative or scripture because um, they didn't have the tie to authority, the authority coming from Christ through the apostles. Um, if that didn't exist, it wasn't even considered as scripture. So uh, that's a very quick rundown on all of that, but are there any, uh, any questions on any of that or thoughts? John? Um, yeah. Right. Well, Josephus, we have, we have an order of uh, books of the Bible from uh, Josephus even. So we see in his time of writing that he was already thinking through that the, these are Scripture. Um, we see that a lot, and we're going to look at some of those. Um, I think he mentions Peter. Um, I don't think he mentions Paul. Um, I think that's about it, though. It's because Josephus is, you know, one of the earliest writers in the early church. So um, his knowledge is limited and probably at some point, you know, there's not a lot of the the letters being circulated at that point either. So, yeah, it's a bit of a, it is a little bit, yeah. (laughs) Mm -hmm. uh, Aquila male and his wife Priscilla. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
they uh, remember worked with Paul in the book of Acts. We see um, they were uh, tent makers with him and helped support his ministry. Mm-hmm. Any other questions on this? All right, let's um, let's read some of these quotes from early church leaders. They help us even more to understand. And it's significant as we read these that this is we're looking within a hundred to two hundred years of writing. One of them being during the time of the final uh, a book of the New Testament being completed in A.D. seventy. Um, Polycarp of Smyrna. Eighty seventy. For neither am I, nor is any other like me, able to follow the wisdom of the blessed and glorious Paul. In other words, he's granting authority to the Apostle Paul, and uh, Polycarp was an associate of Paul's as well, um, and one of the early church fathers. Ignatius, A.D. 112. I do not, as Peter and Paul, issue commandments to you. They were apostles. I am but a condemned man. So he recognizes their authority. Clement of Alexandria, AD 180. There is no discord between the law and the gospel, but harmony, for they both proceed from the same author. In other words, from Genesis to Revelation is Scripture. Who's the same author? It is God, of course. Uh, Origin of Alexandria, AD 230. The records of the four gospels are oracles of the Lord, pure oracles as silver purified seven times in the fire. They breathe the spirit of fullness and there is nothing, whether in the law or in the prophets, in the evangelists, the gospels, or in the apostles, which does not descend from the fullness of the divine majesty. So this is one of the fullest statements of the authority of the New Testament, and that is in 230 A.D., This is well before any church council met to make some determination on which books would be in the New Testament. It was already decided upon in the early church. And Tertullian in AD 190, In the Lord's apostles we possess our authority, for even they did not of themselves choose to introduce anything but faithfully deliver to the nations the doctrine which they have received from Christ. And so, again, Tertullian giving authority to the apostles. So... We see the early church, even as early as Polycarp, giving reference to the writers, at least to the Apostle Paul, and on through the first uh, 100 to 200 years of the church's history, already identifying the books of the New Testament as being the 27 that we have. Now, there is a bit of disagreement in the early church about some of the books, but the the full weight uh, of um, the majority of uh, the early church fathers falls on the 27 that we have. There were a few that disputed Second Peter and James. Now, Martin Luther famously said that he wished the book of James wasn't in the Bible uh, because it's so difficult. Um, but uh, some have wrongly accused him of saying that it wasn't authoritative. He didn't say that. He simply wished it wasn't there because he doesn't want to have to um, be pierced by it uh, all the time. Um, James is the New Testament Proverbs. Um, any questions about that at all? Yes. I, there's discussion about it. I think that it was one of those books written that was ascribed to him, but it wasn't his writing. Um, predominantly because the dating of it seems to be much later. So m- there is debate as to whether or not the New Testament goes in past A.D. 70. 
I, I believe the Bible was completed before AD 70 because there's nothing at all in the scriptures that referenced the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. That is very, very significant. It is the judgment of God upon uh, the people of God. Um, so we would have seen that, I think, in the New Testament if uh, anything was written post-A.D. 70. Yes. Right, yeah, because uh, some would look at the destruction of Jerusalem to be completely fulfilled, uh, a complete fulfillment of what we read in, in Revelation. Sure. There's a lot of that still today that believe that. Uh, I I think I personally believe it's one of the the latest. It's if not the latest, one of the latest books. Um, yeah, I think it was in the mid uh, late sixty sixty five to sixty nine somewhere in there. Yeah, sure. But two, even if it was around eighty seventy or a little bit later, John's not near Jerusalem at the time of its writing. He's in Patmos, so. It's possible that it is the same time, but it's not aligning because he's not there to write about it. All right, question for you guys. Um, We're not meeting next Wednesday because of VBS, but the Wednesday after that. Do you want to continue with some of this? Because there's a lot that can be said about looking at the Gnostic writings and everything else and... Uh, continuing on the authority of Scripture, or do you want to go ahead and jump into the confession and start there? Because we're since we've spent so much time on the Bible, we're going to skip chapter one of the confession. Uh, I know Steve did some work on that on a Wednesday night as well, and we're going to start with chapter two. And that chapter two of the confession might take us a year in itself. So, <laughs> um, what would you prefer? Do you want to go on and talk more about some of this and the Gnostics and the early church, or do you want to jump into the confession? You want to do more of this? Finish up with this? Okay. Yeah, we're set and we're running. That's right. Nope. No, I'm here for like 30 or 40 years, so I got time. <laughs> Lord willing. Okay, well, we'll, uh, uh, we'll look at more of this um, next week. And it gets fun because we get into the heretics and their false teaching, and we can see where uh, a lot of the false teaching of today uh, originated. Um, I, Solomon prophetically said there's nothing new under the sun, and as we look at false teaching today, we saw it in uh, the first century, and it was uh, condemned by the early church. So we'll look at that beginning in two weeks. Great. Anything else? Yeah, like give response to some common objections. Sure. Mm-hmm. Sure. Okay. Yeah, good. Yeah, we can, I'll think through some of that. We can put some of that together. No problem. Good. Anything else? The cults and everything else, yeah. Sure. We get into some of that when we look at the ancient heresies as well because they're just repackaged. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. When when we especially you get into like Jehovah's Witnesses, uh that's just, you know, that's a repackaged heresy from the 3rd century. 
Uh, so we'll talk about some of that in their translations of the Bible. Basically, it all comes down to this. If there's a cult, it's because whoever established the cult didn't like the doctrine of predestination and eternal damnation, so they wrote their own scriptures. I think it's hilarious that uh, even the cult leaders know that predestination is in the Bible and thought to change it, but our brothers and sisters in Christ deny it. It's interesting. Um, anyway, we'll uh, we'll get into some of those and where they come from and how they were condemned and, and burned and all that fun stuff. All right. <laughs> all right, let's uh, pray. Let's see. John, will you pray for us? Thanks.